happy. That makes me just blessed. Whatever language you want to use. But what is it when someone says something or does something? You're like, I just love it. I want more of that. Go. All right, let's take about another 30 seconds. For you introverts, it's only 30 more seconds of pain. You guys can do it. Push through. Tap into the Holy Spirit. If you're watching online, go ahead and type it in. Type in what it is that blesses you, what you love when people say or do to you. Let's start to land the plane here. All right, let's bring it in. Let's bring it in. If you guys will notice in your tables, you've got an outline. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a loose outline. I've added a few things since, uh, since I wrote the outline, but we'll, uh, we'll get through it here. All right. And as we're getting ready to start, we're going to pull up the slide. Um, we're going to do a little bit of review here. Revelation chapter 1. Boy, you're a chatty bunch today. I tell you what. Good. Glad, I'm glad you're here. We're going to be reading, uh, as we're doing the study of the book of Revelation, if you didn't know that, we're doing the study of the book of Revelation, and we're going to be reading from the Passion Translation, and I just want to say, I just love Brian Simmons, who did the Passion Translation. I tell you what, if you don't have a copy of the Revelation uh, book, uh, of, of uh, the Passion Translation, I encourage you to get it. It's worth it just for the footnotes, and so I'll be, I'll be using that. So I am so thankful for Brian's approach to Scripture. Um, we've been friends for a while, and we've talked about it, and uh, his approach to the book of Revelation has really helped me, and that'll come out in the study. I've learned lots from lots of different people, okay? And so I'm thankful for all that. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to do a little bit of review. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to share with his loving servants what must occur swiftly. So number one, this is a book of a, uh, it's a book of a revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. It's a book about Jesus, and as we saw last week, the whole Bible is about Jesus. But this book is specifically telling us it's about him. And so the next part of the verse says, he signified it or he signified it by sending his angel to his loving servant, John. Signifying means that he gave it to John by signs and symbols. So guys, this is a book of symbols. It's a book of signs. The heart language of God is the language of pictures. 
And so I uh, think when you see the word signified, think signified. And so it's written in that. So that means when we see that, um, we see that there's a lamb in the book of Revelation, we're not going to picture a woolly creature in a barnyard somewhere. We're going to recognize this is a symbol pointing to something else. So how do we interpret those symbols? Well, that's the next part um, of what we looked at last time. This book is symbols, and the key to interpreting these symbols is the other 65 books in the Bible. Okay? And so not your imagination, not the newspaper. Uh, remember that we're going to see there is a blessing for the people who read it in the first century. They didn't have the Columbus Dispatch. It actually had to mean something to them, and the key to unlocking that was the Old Testament. We see back in the book of Exodus, there was a sacrificial lamb that was a picture of Jesus Christ. We see in John 1, where John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we know when we come to the book of Revelation that the Lamb is... Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Guys, it, it... <laughs> that's, that's always going to be the safe answer. It's like the Sunday school lesson. It's like, you know, what's brown, furry, has a tail, and hunts for nuts? And the kid's like, I know it sounds like a squirrel, but since we're in Sunday school, it must be Jesus, right? And so just answer Jesus, and you'll be pretty safe. And if there's ever a number, it's either going to be number seven or 666 when it comes to the book of Revelation, all right? So help us, Jesus. So pictures of the heart language. And I want you to get this picture. As we're reading the book of Revelation, it's almost like learning a foreign language. We're learning the language of the Spirit, and how do you learn a language? You learn it a word at a time, and then you get a phrase, and you're like, hey, I can, I can say a whole sentence. And so we're going to literally just take the book of Revelation, a phrase at a time. It may take us longer than you're thinking, but I think the rewards are going to be worth it, okay? So uh, verse 2, I, John, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. A joyous blessing rests upon the one who reads this message and upon those who hear and embrace the words of this prophecy. For the appointed time is in your hands. Boy, that's interesting. I, I don't want to go too much into this, but the appearing of Jesus is in your hands. You, you can have 40 years in the desert. You can have 40 days in the desert like Jesus. Oh, we're going to get into that here in just a little bit. All right. All right. I'm not going to go in that way. All right. Uh, this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing just for reading it. Listen, there's a blessing that's special on this that you're not going to get from Obadiah. Listen, we need to study and read Obadiah. We need to read all those things. We did a study on Leviticus last year, if you guys remember that. We need this. But there's actually a special blessing that's promised just from reading and understanding this book. And so do you want to get to know who Jesus really is? Then it's in this book. I didn't say how Jesus really was. We get to see that in the Gospels. But if you want to know how Jesus now is, that there's actually a human being running this universe. One-third of the Trinity is a human being. And guess what? You've been included into that since you're into Christ, but we won't go into that right now. Oh, man, you guys are. All right, number four, we will see that the revelation of Jesus Christ to you will produce a revelation of Jesus through you because when you see him, you become like him. We're going to get into this today. And number five, we need the Holy Spirit to continue to unlock its deep mysteries to us. I almost feel like it's uh, with this book for some reason. It's almost like when Moses was in front of the burning bush. If you're looking in your notes, we haven't got to those yet, okay? So I said, people are like, where is he at? So yeah, we're just doing a little bit of review. I almost feel like it's when Moses was uh, in front of the burning bush and he had to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. I feel like that's the approach to the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it's a holy book. It's a spiritual book. And it's like, Holy Spirit, we need you to do this. And so just as we get ready to go into this, let's just do that. Let's take off our shoes. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Guy's feet are nasty. I'm just telling you. Like the long toes and everything. Lord, we take off our shoes metaphorically. And we just recognize, Lord, that when we 
come to see Jesus, we are on holy ground. And we have full access to the throne because of him. But God, we just posture our hearts and we just ask the Holy Spirit, unveil Jesus to us. Help us to see you more clearly because when we see you, we become like you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we're going to cover five verses today. Doesn't that sound good? Like, Jim, there's 404 verses in Revelation, and in two weeks, we're only covering eight. Yeah, that's where we're at. All right, number, verse four, from John to the seven churches in Western Turkey. Most translations say Asia Minor, but uh, where they're actually on the map today would be more modern-day Western Turkey. Uh, May the kindness of God's grace and peace overflow to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are in front of his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, and the ruling king. Man, this is incredible. Who rules over the kings of the earth. Now to the one who constantly loves us and has loosed us from our sins by his own blood. And to the one who has made us to rule as a kingly priesthood to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion throughout the eternity of eternities. Amen. All right, let's jump into verse 4. From John to the seven churches in Western Turkey. Now, the number seven denotes completion or wholeness or perfection or fullness. And so these churches are both figurative and literal. You say, Jim, how do we know that? Well, there was actually seven churches in Asia Minor. We're going to be studying them uh, two times from now. You know, the Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, the Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There we are. They are. E-S-P-T-S-P-L. That's the acronym that I was using. So anyway, <clears throat> seven churches, they're both like, and so why would, you know, why would John limit it to just seven churches? Because there was other churches. It's because it was to these seven churches, but it's also to the church universal, the church of all time. And every church age, there's going to be an Ephesus. And every church age, there's going to be a Thyatira. There's going to be a persecuted church. There's going to be a church that's uh, losing their first love. There's going to be a church that is... Um, you know, in danger of compromising. There's a church that just needs some encouragement. And so we're going to look at all those churches in detail. But John is he's writing by the Holy Spirit to all these churches, and he's going to picture them as lampstands. And uh, we're going to get to that at another time. But I want you to see, God has a passion in his heart for these churches. He's writing to these churches where some are struggling. They're being persecuted from within. They got compromised on the outside. There are people being put to death. God loves the churches that you don't like. God loves the churches that you left. Are we okay? So many Christians are having an out-of-body experience. They're not connected to a church body. Oh, don't you boo me. (laughs) But Jim, those churches have problems. So do you. (laughs) Why do you think those churches had problems? Because they had imperfect leaders and imperfect sheep, just like this one, all right? Yeah, stick around long enough. I promise you'll get offended because there's people here. So you get a choice. Are you going to walk in honor and grow up, or are you going to be a cruise-o-matic and cruise in there? Ah, are we doing? All right, all right, all right. <laughs> there is not a completed, perfected church yet, but there will be in the days to come. He's perfecting his bride. He's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle which means there will be a bride that looks like he's, he's creating a body in proportion to the head. It's not going to be a bobblehead church. This giant, perfect Jesus and this wimpy, wimpy, wimpy body. So the seven churches become a representation of all the churches because it denotes completeness, perfection, wholeness. 
I love the next phrase, may the kindness of God's grace and peace overflow to you. I titled this sermon, uh, Greetings from the Trinity, because we're seeing the Trinity just kind of erupts on the scene and, uh, and is getting ready to kind of launch these visions to John. But you could have easily called it Blessings from the Trinity. And I want you to see the kind of God that we serve, how he begins to address these churches, who some of them are struggling, some of them are a hot mess. And, so they just need, and here's how he addresses them. May the kindness of God's grace and peace overflow to you. I'm just going to give you a little bit of grace. No, no. May it overflow to you. He speaks this gracious blessing, grace and peace. Grace is the joyful energy that streams from heaven that influences and produces a result that you can't do on your own. Here's a news alert. We all need more grace. I like to say it like this. Christians burn through grace the way the space shuttle burns through fuel trying to get out of the atmosphere. The more mature you become in Christ, it's not the less grace you need. It's the more you learn to depend on the grace that you actually need. We are, we are using a shameless amount of grace if we're doing it right. When we step outside of grace and do it in our own strength, that's the, that's the flesh life. That's where all the mess happens. So grace is what God can do, and what God can do is limitless. God wants to stream grace into your heart. And don't look now, but the person next to you really needs some grace, as well as the person in the mirror. He says grace and peace. Peace is when everything is at rest within, whole and complete and content. Everything within you is at rest. So he says, may this energy of heaven that enables you to do the impossible, may the peace of heaven that sets everything at rest, may it overflow to you. That's quite a way to start a letter out. May the kindness of grace and peace overflow to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Are you seeing these titles of the Trinity? I mean, these are like cosmic level galactic titles they're giving here. The one who is and was and is to come. Uh, you might want to write that one in your notes. I don't think I put that one in your notes. The God who dwells in these three realms, present, past, and future, described by John, and the one who was and is and is to come. I love how he's, he's starting the book. He isn't saying, um, the Antichrist is coming. You better put on your crash helmets and hide in a bunker. Well, if you watch some of the uh, Christian news or Christian TV, you think that's exactly what we're supposed to do, is get some freeze-dried food and hide in a bunker and... <clears throat> It's grace and peace and blessing is what's coming to you from the one who is and was and is to come. The realm of the spirit is past, present, and future. There's eternal realities with a sandwich in between of time. The bread, I know this analogy is getting ridiculous. <clears throat> the bread is eternity past. The other slice of bread is eternity future. And there's this creation of time in between that exists only in us now. But it's not, it's not a heavenly concept. Whenever Jesus is mentioned, he's never just mentioned in the past. And he's never just mentioned in the future or just in the present. He exists in all three realms simultaneously. Time does not exist in the realm of the transcendent king. He transcends time. It's a measurement that we use in this earth realm, but he's the one who was and is and is to come. He was the man of Calvary. He was the Galilean worker. He was the, the miracle worker. He was the carpenter of Nazareth. He was, the, uh, you know, he was the baby born in a manger. He was that. He was the one who hung on the cross. Guys, he's not the baby in the manger. He's not, the, he's not still hanging on the cross. Okay? He, if we want to see him how he now is, that's who he was. If we want to see how he is, the book of Revelation unveils this to us. He's exalted and seated in the heavenly realm in that eternal state of absolute timelessness. And eternity is not unending time. Eternity is the absence of time. 
It is the absolute absence of any measurement called time, and that's the realm in which God dwells. And that's the realm in which he says, may grace and peace overflow to you. Isn't that good? The Lord who is and who was and who is to come. Okay. It's about to get good in here. Are you guys all right? Did anyone bring their shouting shoes? Because I've got some OMG level good news coming up for you. The Lord who is and who was and who is to come. We'll see in a bit that Jesus is coming again, but how he's going to come at first is through his people. 1 John 4, 3, not in your notes or on the slide, it's new. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Oh my goodness, we actually are identifying the Antichrist. And it's you. It's that thing inside of you that's telling you that Jesus didn't come in your flesh, that Christ isn't really in you. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. The Antichrist is not a future event. He was back there in John's day. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. It says that Jesus has not come in the flesh. The Antichrist spirit is not just saying that he didn't come and live on earth as a man. That de- that, you know, it's not just saying Jesus didn't really come you know, as a baby in a manger. There's a deeper meaning here. It's saying that Jesus has not come in your flesh to live in you. Jesus was from eternity past, and he lived as a man 2,000 years ago. Not in heaven, but now he is ruling as a human being. But he is the one who is coming, and he's coming through his bride. You're like, Jim, what do you mean he's coming through his bride? It's the very next phrase. Um, Oh, no, we haven't got to. It's coming up. I'm I'm just teasing you with that. You all right? So he's the one who was and is and is to come. He's going to be coming through his people, and that's coming up in a couple verses. I'm just teasing you with it. All right, uh, may the kindness of God's grace and peace overflow to you from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are in front of his throne. You're like, Jim, I thought there was one spirit. What's up with the seven spirits? It could also be translated the sevenfold spirit. So this is a description of the Holy Spirit. These are the seven anointings, the seven mantles, the seven torches, Uh, the seven horns, the seven eyes of the lamb. Three times in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 5, it speaks of the seven spirits of God. Sometimes it's the seven spirits of God before the throne. It's also pictured as the eyes that go throughout the earth, searching, searching for hearts who are completely his. The seven spirits of God are one spirit. Remember, whenever we see something, it's a symbol. And seven is a symbol of fullness, of completion. It doesn't have to mean it's a literal seven spirits. It's a, it's a picture of completion. So I want you to get this. There are not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one, but he has seven aspects. So guys, if the Trinity can be God in three, one God in three persons, if the Trinity can be three in one, the Holy Spirit can be seven in one. Just like the church was seven in one. There were seven churches, and yet there's one church. How are we doing? It's a book of symbols, right? And so that one spirit unites all, who unites all believers together. He's revealed in seven flames. He's the seven burning, he's the seven candlesticks on the lampstand of the tabernacle. He's the seven torches burning on the sea of glass. He's the seven eyes of the lamb. He's the eyes of God sent out into all the earth. Now, the golden lampstand in the tabernacle had seven branches, right? I'm going to be bringing up a menorah here. My brother and sister-in-law were just in town, and they, uh, they said they saw like a life-size menorah, like six feet tall. It's some, I'm like, why didn't you get it for me? I, should, I would have loved to have had the giant menorah. I don't know what I'd do with it after I preached on it. I mean, what are you, you going to do with a six-foot menorah? But anyway, 
And so um, it had seven branches. And here's the picture. It's the sevenfold spirit of God that illum- is the illuminating influence over God's people. That's the picture of the lampstand in the tabernacle, right? But here's the thing. We actually get a picture of these seven branches in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I believe we got the slide. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is speaking about the Messiah. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's a picture of the Messiah saying he will come from the royal line of David because Jesse was the grandson of Boaz, who was the father of King David. Right? Am I talking too fast? Okay? And so he's saying upon this Messiah will rest the seven spirits of God. Let's count them with me. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So let's just go through these one at a time. You guys good? We're getting to know the Trinity here a little better. I just love these titles. The Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of Yahweh is the Spirit of prophecy. In the Old Testament, whenever the Spirit of Yahweh or the Spirit of the Lord came upon somebody, it meant the Spirit of prophecy had come upon them, and they would be able to speak the words of God to men. The second one is the Spirit of wisdom. We could do sermons on each one of these. I think I did, and then we did the Ephesians series. I actually did a whole message just on the Spirit of wisdom. Spirit of wisdom or the Spirit of skillfulness Um, This gives equipping ability for music, art, business, writing, creativity, and wisdom for judicial decisions. How many of you want these seven spirits? Here's some good news. You received access to all of him when you got saved. We don't need to do a special sevenfold spirit anointing tunnel. Because of Jesus, you get access to everything on day one. So what if we begin to attach our faith, and he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. What if we begin to ask for these things? Paul prayed for churches to receive this spirit of wisdom. That means you can pray for it for your children, and your grandchildren, and yourself, and your pastors. And and you can even pray for your pastors, because they needs it. The third one, the spirit of understanding, or you could say the spirit of intelligent insight. Okay, this imparts the ability to discern truth, to know the meaning of riddles, and to decipher parables and allegories. You saw this anointing on the prophet Daniel. He was able to, he was able to do this. Uh, the fourth one, the spirit of counsel or the spirit of guidance. Uh, the Hebrew word used here uh, for counsel, it could also be um, counsel, advice, or purpose. It's used the picture of guiding or steering a ship. And so this anointing, it's going to part wisdom and counsel needed for spiritual leadership. You see it in Exodus 18 where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he had this, this spirit of guidance come on him. And he's like, Moses, this is what you need to do. You need to divide up the people by this and this and put leaders over them. Remember that? Number five, the spirit of might or the spirit of a mighty warrior. Uh, we probably saw this on David's mighty men, maybe on, um, what's the guy with long hair? Samson, all right? What's the guy with long hair? You were going to say Jesus, weren't you? Because that's always the answer. That would have been good, too, because it was on Jesus. All right. Number six, the spirit of knowledge or the spirit of revelation. Uh, this is not knowledge learned from books. This is not someone who's like really good at you know, chess and all that stuff. And so, um, but it, it's, uh, it's knowledge that comes from experiencing intimacy with God. And number seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord or the spirit of the fear of Yahweh. It just, it just sounds a little bit more powerful when you recognize, you know, that word your Lord there is yord. It's, it's, uh, it's Swedish. And so <clears throat> the spirit of the fear of Yahweh, this is absolute loyalty to God or reverence for God. Can we just say, I love you, Holy Spirit? I mean, <laughs> I love all of you, Holy Spirit, right? 
And so the Holy Spirit has these seven aspects, and he wants to impart them to us. So I, don't, I just want to arouse your sweet tooth for this. Do you want every single one of those seven aspects of the Holy Spirit? Yes. So how many branches were there in the menorah and the golden lampstand? Seven. Yeah, it's either seven or six, 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 right? Okay. Uh, with the book of, yeah. And so how many flames did the menorah have? Seven. What happened when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost? Remember, there was a flame of fire. That flame of the menorah came and settled on each one of them. So they received the sevenfold spirit of God. Not just one of those aspects, but all seven. The church is always represented by the menorah or the lampstand. So you have all full access to all of these abilities of the Holy Spirit because he has come upon you. That flame from the tabernacle, that flame of glory protecting uh, Israel uh, by night, leading them by night, has now come upon you. There's a principle in the sacrificial system from Leviticus. Maybe we remember this from a year ago. But whenever you sacrifice a dove, you are not allowed to cut him up. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. You either have none of him or you have all of him. When you got saved, you didn't get a little bit of the Holy Spirit. You got all of him. How are we doing? So we got to meet the Father, the one who is and was and is to come. We got to meet the sevenfold spirits of God. Now we get the description of Jesus. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead and the ruling king who rules over the kings of the earth. We're about to see Jesus is going to be unveiled as prophet, priest, and king. As the prophet, Jesus is the faithful witness who only speaks the Father's word. He only says what he hears the Father saying. He only does what he hears the Father, uh, what he sees the Father do. Jesus perfectly revealed what the Father was like. A lot of people think Jesus' mission was just to come and die on a cross and everything else was just kind of treading water. But Jesus came, I, over and over, he says, I've came to reveal the Father. When you see a woman caught in adultery, Jesus writes something in the, in the dirt that we don't know what it is, but it really such an atmosphere of grace that it caused everyone else to run. And, uh, and he said, what's he said? He said, I'm only doing what I see the dad do, what I see my father doing. What's he doing? He's having a father-daughter moment with this woman who's been caught, who's full of shame, and people want to kill her. What do fathers do? They step in and protect and restore. What's he doing? He's having a father-daughter moment. And Jesus was the faithful witness to what dad was really like. He's the firstborn. How are we doing? What's, what are we doing? What's this book doing? It's unveiling Jesus to us. It's helping us see him more clearly. And we get to see that we're united to him, so now that becomes our mission. All right, more to come on that. All right. Firstborn among the dead. Um, unless you've been through severe bereavement, you might not appreciate someone who's conquered death. As the firstborn among the dead, he's a priest who rules forever after the high priestly order of Melchizedek. So he's not only the, prof he's not only the, um, the prophet who faithfully witnesses to what dad is like. He's not only the priest who represents us to people who's conquered death and now we can conquer death. He's also the ruling king. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's not Amazon. It's not CNN News. It's not the big tech companies. It's not the oil conglomerates of the Middle East. He is over every other king. Jesus is the king of all kings, and since we're royalty, we are the kings that he's the king over. Yeah. He's a king. You have a king and a priest living inside of you. And in the Old Testament, you were either a king or a priest. You didn't get to walk in both anointings. 
There was a king named Uzziah who thought he could. He thought he was big stuff. And he walked into the holy place. And he, remember, only priests were able to offer sacrifices in the holy place, or offer offerings in the holy place. And so he had 80 priests begging him not to go in there. Like, you don't have the anointing for that. And Uzziah walked in there, offered in any way, and God struck him with leprosy. But now, guys, we're under a new covenant where, there's, uh, where the king and the priest both live inside of us. And so there's this mingling of the kingly anointing and the priestly anointing. You get to be a kingly priest and a priestly king. I'll be under the kind of king that Jesus is any day. He is not threatened or intimidated by those who think they know more than him or those who don't believe in him. All the plans of the world to get Jesus out of the school and God off of this and this and that. It says he sits in the heavens and laughs at the plans of the enemy. He's the king of all kings. And there will be a day, one day, coming soon to a city near you where he will rule unchecked, unchallenged. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Right now, it's voluntary worship. When you see him as he is, it will be involuntary worship. The only response will be every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and say, my God, he is the Lord of all. But for now, we get a choice. But if he was any more obvious, it would take away free will and we wouldn't have a choice. And that's why he hides himself. Hides himself in parables. Hides himself in his people. Because if he was any more obvious, there would be no free will. How are we doing? I love this next phrase, uh, Revelation 1.5. Now to the one who constantly loves us. Your king of all kings is a lover. <laughs> your king is a bridegroom. And he constantly loves you and me. He loves you on your good days, and he loves you on your bad days. He constantly loves us. And we can trust and rely on this king who actually is the love of God. Now to the one who constantly loves us and has loosed us from our sins by his own blood. I love this loosed. It means he has severed the tie of sin for you, from you forever and forever and forever. This means that anyone can bring up something from your past and you don't blush because that is under the blood of Jesus. Anytime you think of your past and you blush, you need a greater revelation of this king who has loosed you from your sins forever. You are not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by your worst days. You're defined by the one you've been united to. And he will, God loves Jesus so much, he's going to fill the universe with lookalikes of his son. And he will make a bride in proportion to the bridegroom. He will make us spotless and without wrinkle. Jesus. All the guilt and shame and power of sin has been done away with by his own blood. And to the one who has made us to rule as a, verse 6, and to the one who has made us to rule as a kingly priesthood to serve his God and Father. Man. To him be glory and dominion throughout the eternity of eternities. I kind of already hit the priestly and the kingly thing. You walk on earth as a planetary priest and you have authority to bring heaven to earth. You are a royal priesthood. All right, you guys ready to go to another level? We doing all right? I'm not going anywhere. I hope you're not going anywhere. Verse 7. Behold, take a look at this. He appears within the clouds. Where is he going to appear? All right, keep that in mind for a second. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every single one of us have pierced him with our, with our sin. And all the people groups of the earth will weep with sorrow because of him, and so it is to be. Amen. Okay, the word appears. Behold, he appears. This is speaking of Jesus. Jesus appears. It could be translated, he comes. 
And the tense of this verb, I'm not going to get into the technical side of it, but let me just say it indicates this is a present tense reality. Okay? It's not a distant future one. It's a present tense reality of him appearing within the clouds. Okay? Ready for this? It could be translated, he is now coming. It could be translated, he is in the act of coming and continues to come. Okay, get this. Behold, Jesus is now in the act of coming, and he continues to come. How does he come? Within the clouds. What are clouds in the Bible? What's the key? Remember, clouds are a symbol. It's not a puffy cumulonimbus water mist. Cloud is a symbol. Eight times in the Bible, clouds are people. How's he going to appear? Within the clouds. Let's look at this. Are we all right? He's going to appear riding on the clouds. He appears within the clouds. It could also be translated, he will be surrounded with clouds. He appears by means of clouds. He appears with clouds. He appears between clouds. Let's look at some of those Old Testament references of, uh, of clouds. We all love Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has come upon you. It's a picture of these glorified people who are going up and changing the city. But a lot of people didn't make it to verse 8. Here's what verse 8 says. Who are those who soar like clouds, flying like doves into their portals? It's the glorified people. The people who had the glory of God come upon them. Now they're like clouds, soaring like clouds. There was only one cloud of glory in the Old Testament, but Isaiah says the glory cloud is now plural. You're now a glory cloud. And God's raising up a cloud company, and we are the clouds in which Christ will be appearing. It's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, there's a cloud of witnesses. There were people. We're surrounded by clouds of witnesses. So we know that people can be compared to clouds. I mean, there's more things. Like, I mean, 2 Peter 2.17 describes false prophets as clouds carried by wind. Jude 1.12 describes false teachers as clouds without water. Water throughout the scriptures was a picture of the anointing. Remember, the anointing is like dew from heaven in Psalm 133. When um, uh, Gideon was uh, uh, in, in the fleece and he was wringing out the fleece, he was, saying, God, he was saying, God, I need the dew of heaven. I need the anointing of heaven for this task. How are we doing? Genesis 9.13, God put his rainbow in the clouds. The rainbow is his covenant. It's his promise. So let's do the math. We're the clouds. He puts his covenant in the clouds. He puts his rainbow in the clouds. Just catch it in your spirit. Don't try to figure it all out with your head. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Jesus appears in the clouds. Listen to how Brian Simmons translates this in the Passion Translation. Um, masses of, Jesus will appear with masses of saints having the appearance of clouds. Or he says it could be translated like this. Jesus is coming with masses amounts of saints appearing as clouds. Everyone's trying to make that the rapture passage, but here is, is Jesus appearing through his people. And what are, this, what are the tense of the verb saying? It's at hand. It's present tense continuing. Christ in you is the hope of glory. What's the hope of this planet seeing glory? Christ appearing in his clouds. Christ appearing in his, in his people. It's not Christ in heaven, the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. How are we doing? This is good news. Listen, Zion, a cloud company is coming to earth. 
a people that will restore and bring him back because he's coming in the clouds, and you're the cloud. How are we doing? Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Are we ready for another one? Okay. I am the Aleph and the Toph, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Lord Almighty. So most of your Bible translations probably say Alpha and Omega, right? And so I just have to, there's, there's two funny things. There was this guy when I was growing up, and he would give the same prophecy every week in church. And he would start off and he would say, my people, my people, I'm the Alfalfa and Omega. I was like, oh, my word. <laughs> and then I was on staff, um, remember Pop? Uh, there's, a, there's an older gentleman, but he was just a sweetheart. And, uh, but he used to always say, the Alpha and Omega. I'm like, oh, that North Carolina accent, it's not Omega, okay? So the New Testament was written in Greek, okay? And in the Greek, um, the first letter of the alphabet is the alpha, and the last letter of the alphabet is omega. And so uh, there's, you know, he said, I'm the first and the last, I'm the A to the Z. But let's take it a little bit deeper. Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek, he was speaking in Hebrew. You're like, Jim, how do you know this? Whenever Jesus is quoted as speaking in the New Testament, they actually transliterate it and give us the Hebrew or the Aramaic he was speaking in. Remember, what are his last words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Greek translated into English, but they actually tell us what he actually said. Remember, it's um, Eloi, Eloi, Laba, Sabachthani. Remember that? They actually give us. Why? Because that's what he was speaking. He wasn't speaking Greek. So whenever Jesus is quoted word for word, they actually tell us that he was speaking either Greek or he was either speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. Remember, he's getting ready to um, raise the girl from the dead, and he says, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, wake up. He's actually, when he speaks from heaven today, he's actually still speaking Aramaic. Listen to Psalm, Acts 26, 14. I'm Psalm. Acts 26, 14. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the goats? I want you to get this. When Jesus spoke on earth, he spoke uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. When he speaks from heaven today, he's still speaking that language. So when he was speaking to John, he didn't say, I'm the Alpha, Alfalfa and Omega. I'm the A to Z. He said, I'm the Aleph and the Tav. And that's why I love that the Passion Translation picks this up. I'm the Aleph and the Tav. And now you're thinking, so what? Why the Aleph and the Tav? You guys ready? <laughs> this is so good. Oh, God is so sneaky. Okay. Can we put up what an Aleph and a Tav looks like today in modern Hebrew? Okay, so that's modern Hebrew. You read right to left. Okay, and just don't ask me why the Hebrews do that. You read right to left. So the Aleph is uh, the one that kind of looks like the cross, and the other one looks like... So I want you to see, the modern Hebrew is a little bit more of a boxy language, all right? But the original Bible was written in Paleo-Hebrew, which was more pictorial. So you're reading modern Hebrew. Can we show a picture of, um, of the uh, Paleo-Hebrew? The Aleph was a picture of a sacrificial ox or the head of a bull, and the Tav was a cross. Next picture. There we go. That's how they actually wrote it there. So when Jesus says, I am the Aleph and the Tav, he is saying, I am the cross and the sacrifice. When you read um, from right to left in Hebrew, um, the Aleph and the Tav spells a word. I will just call it et, okay? That word is in the Old Testament 9,612 9, times, and yet it's never translated one time. This olive top, we're going to look at a couple examples of it. I want you to see this. It's the signature of Jesus hidden throughout the Old Testament. Remember he said all of the, uh, I want you to get this. Jesus is mentioned 100 times more in the Old Testament than he was in the New Testament. And in these, it wasn't even translated. This olive top is hidden throughout the Old Testament. How are we doing? 
It's never translated. So Hebrew scholars will say, oh, because the grammatical syntax is, you know, it's untranslatable here. And so let me give you an example. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The first verse in the Bible in Hebrew and in English, okay, it's, it's seven words. Okay, so how do you translate that in English? You can see the top row is the Hebrew. The second row there is the uh, transliteration into English. And then that is how you, kind of more of an English version of those Hebrew words. Ha-eretz, I'm not going to do it because I, I had Hebrew 25 years ago. I'm not going to pretend like I can do this, all right? Do you, got, you don't have this on your sheets, do you? We'll just, we'll just enjoy it right now, okay? Okay, I want you to get this. And so look at the beginning. How, how do we translate it? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I want you to see that word right in the middle, that, that eat. It's, it's the aleph on the right and the tav. Remember, we read it right to left. So three words in Hebrew, the aleph, tav, three, word, three more words in Hebrew. That word never gets translated. Don't you find that a bit strange? So who is the one that, through whom God created in the beginning the heavens and the earth? It's the aleph, tav. And John picks this up. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. And um, through all them, him, all things were created. Through whom? Well, John says it's Jesus. This says it's the Aleph Tav. How are we doing? Let's look at another example, Zechariah 12, 10. Um, it says that they who look upon, they who look upon me, um, who look upon who? The Aleph Tav. It's right in the middle there, but it's... There's a whole, there's whole books in this thing. I was going to bring it. There's a book this thick, and it just covers the first five books of the Bible. It goes through every instance. There's, there's almost 10,000 instances of this, and it's never translated. It's amazing how that word comes. When Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, I'm not going to get into all that stuff. All right. Ruth, when she gets married, it's, uh, it says uh, she is called Ruth, Ruth, Aleph Tav. <laughs> Remember, Boaz is a picture of Jesus, and when she gets married, her name gets changed to Ruth, Aleph Tav, but it doesn't get translated. How are we doing? So you find it all the way through the Bible. Isn't that cool? So what's Jesus saying? I am the Aleph and the Tav. I'm the one who shows up throughout the Old Testament. The whole thing was talking about me, and I just thought I'd put my signature in there a few times. That was me. Yay, God. All right, so let's do a little table talk, and then uh, we're going to do some announcements, and then we're going to get to these doors. Has anyone noticed we've got these strange doors sitting here? Oh, boy. It's going to be a good way to end it, I tell you what. We're going to do the doors right before worship. Let's do some table talk. So there's two questions here. Number one, imagine you're a Christian living in the first century. I, mean, I want you to set the context. You know, they've, uh, the, the temple's been destroyed. Um, Domitian, the emperor, you know, he's hunting down Christians, putting them to death. I mean, just tough things. Imagine you're a Christian living in the first century, and you hear these five verses read, because we covered those five verses today. What would a Christian understand about God from these verses? And number two, how does this understanding of God give you hope today? I want you guys to take five, ten minutes, just talk about those two questions. We're going to do some announcements, then we're going to do the doors. I'll see you guys in five or ten minutes.
All right, guys, let's take about another 60 seconds. All right, take about another 10 seconds. I'm a remarkable young man. So I know you guys are probably wondering, like, who's leading the dance ministry? It's actually going to be me. And so um, we're just going to all be doing swivel knees. That's what we're going to be doing, so. All right. Some of you need to pray again after seeing swivel knees. All right, let's deal with these doors here. I think the worship team's coming up. Awesome. Lost my notes. Here we go. Let's put up Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 again. I think it's one of the last slides there. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to share with his loving servants. If you see in parentheses there, <clears throat> you're going to see in parentheses, I decree and declare. It's, it's the, uh, the, remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. But the word loving servants is the word doulos. Maybe in some of your Bible translations, it gets translated as um, it's just, it's actually the last slide. It's just Revelation 1.1, but that's okay. Um, the, uh, yeah, so, uh, which God gave him to share with his loving servants or doulos. So you, some of your translations may say bond servants. Okay. This is a picture from the old Testament. Can you guys pull up Exodus chapter 21 verses two verses five and six. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. So here's, here's the deal. If, if a slave makes, does his, uh, uh, his service, when it comes to that seventh year or the jubilee year, he's able to go free. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And there his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. We got any volunteers? <laughs> Why else do you think I got this thing here? So the master, so when it came time to set him free, if the master said, listen, my family and I, we love you. We want to serve you out of loving service, not out of obligation, but out of loving service. We are going to be yours forever. They would take it and they would put his ear against the doorpost and they would pierce it through. And that pierced ear was a symbol that I'm, I'm now serving my master forever out of love and not duty. Are you seeing why we have doors up here now? I'm not really going to get volunteers here, but we are going to do something with these doors. Let me ask you this. Has your ear been pierced? Have you heard the word of your master that you've been set free? Have you put your ear against the door? But Jesus said, I am the door. Someone's going to get this in here. Who wrote the book of Revelation? John. Well, yeah, I know you're thinking Jesus. Yeah, he did. It was John. 
Do you remember when John leaned his ear against Jesus and became a bondservant? Remember when the Last Supper, he reclined against the door and had his ear pierced with a revelation of love? And he says, the only people who get to understand this book are the doulos, the loving servants, those who have put their ear to the door of Jesus and allowed him to pierce it. Hear that word that you are free. And us to say, you know what? I know I'm free, but I'm going to serve you out of love the rest of my life. Proverbs 8.34 says, if you wait at wisdom's doorway, wisdom's doorway, Jesus the door, longing to hear a word for you every day, joy will break forth within you as you listen for what I'll say. As we go into worship, I want you to lean upon the door of Jesus. And as an outward sign of an inward commitment, sometime during worship, I want you to take a sticky note. And this will just be, guys, I would love to do the ear piercing, but I have a low pain threshold and I cry easily, okay? Like whenever I get a paper cut, I want Mary to write a song about it, okay? And so, but I want you to get the symbolism that as we're worshiping, as you're leaning upon the door of Jesus, I want you to hear him speak to you. You're free. I have severed you from your sin of your past. I've washed you. All those blessings that we talk about, the things that we're going to sing about, I want those to wash over you. And at some point during worship, we've got two doors back there. We've got four up here. I want you to come, and you can write whatever you want on that sticky note. You can write, I'm your loving servant forever. You can write doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. You can, try to, you can spell it wrong. You can put your name on it. Whatever you want to do, but as a symbol of you being pierced, I want you to come at some time during worship. So just keep your eyes closed most of worship because it'll probably be a little bit distracting, but um, just between you and the Lord, I want this to be a marking moment for you. Allow him to pierce your ears and you to respond as a doulos. Bless you guys. Mm -hmm.